Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Welcome to the Medicine Path podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. In this episode, I sit down with ambient music pioneer and laughter yoga guru Laraji. Laraji was born Edward Larry Gordon in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1943. He's a multi-instrumentalist and composer who, after a spiritual awakening in the early 1970s, began creating what he calls celestial music. In 1979, he was discovered busking in Washington Square Park in New York City by Brian Eno, who produced the album that would bring Laraji's celestial sounds to a worldwide audience. Today, Laraji travels the world sharing his music and laughter meditation workshops with his partner RG. And I was able to sit down for croissants and tea with Laraji and RG in Montreal after their workshop the previous evening. We had a wonderful chat about music, meditation, spiritual practice, psychedelics, and our shared love of Jamaican ginger beer. So please sit back and enjoy this enlightening conversation with the eternal consciousness currently embodied as Laraji.
show your face. Put your nose on this glass plate here. Breathe heavy and talk your language. We'll understand you. Looks good. <laughs> okay, so I just wanted to start with yeah. a little chanting. And I love Om. Yeah. <laughs> so my teacher would say, um, everything's in Om. Okay. So Om covers your bases. <laughs> Thanks for that. So I'm here with uh, Loraji and his partner, Arji. We're sitting in a loft in uh, a neighborhood, kind of industrial neighborhood in Montreal. It's an artist loft that they're staying at while they're here uh, performing and teaching. And I participated in a laughter workshop last night that uh, was amazing. <laughs> so thank, thank you. you for that. And I wonder if we could just start at the beginning. And I'm interested in how you got involved with music and when that was. Possibly in the, in the grade schools in New Jersey, Perth Amboy, New Jersey, United States of, of America. The school system promoted music and music education. Probably the first instrument I played was a little fife, a little black closed-in flute called a tonet in either the fourth or third grade, however you... The school system there has... Fourth grade, they introduced students to the music. And um, then I went on to the violin, violin, trombone, and piano. My mother saw my interest in the piano. During church services, I would sneak after the church service, sneak downstairs and pound on the piano. <laughs> on the piano. And uh, that was about an hour before church service. Between Sunday school and church service, there was this demilitarized zone. <laughs> <laughs> so she bought an upright piano and put it in the house and saw that my interest was sincere and she sprung for piano lessons. I think I had a Polish piano teacher and um, so I learned violin piano sang in the school choirs the church choirs and in school orchestras and in high school I continued that and joined playing also in the marching bands so music was 
uh, a staple in my life. My mother sang in the house a lot. She was a member of the choir, but she would sing and hum and croon around the house. And uh, I would hang out on the street corners with some of my friends after school, and we'd do doo-wop music, mimicking the doo-wop uh, fad of that time, the 19, uh, late 1950s, the um, mimic groups like Frankie Lyman and Teenagers and Little Anthony and the Imperials. So music was there, and I found that music was a wonderful energy shifter that I could escape or journey out of uh, either boredom or stagnation or or just journey to a more exciting, more uh, entertaining psychological space through music and sound. After college, well, during, well, during high school, I had the uh, impression I wanted to be an engineer or an architect, so I applied to all of these technical colleges in the United States. But somewhere early in the high school, after getting all these catalogs, some a conversation with someone allowed me to realize music was what I wanted to do. So I applied to Howard University, a non really a non technical school in Washington DC, an all uh ethnic college. So I got into Howard and went and studied music there. Music major was a, a piano major, a theory and composition, and spent four years in at Howard getting my uh, skills ready to be a composer, songwriter. And uh, so there's my musical What layout. kind of music were you composing at that time? Uh, it was jazz, R&B influence, and it was just pulling it out of the sky. Uh, in other words, music would suggest itself, and I'd feel its way into composing and I actually wrote things on paper, notes and and uh, uh, manuscript paper, and copyrighted a lot of it. Everything I copyrighted never got released, but mm. all the music since then has. So uh, slaving over copyright paper and manuscripts, I guess it was good at the beginning. But the music I was doing then was kind of, kind of, classical influence with a little jazz in there. But the idea of beauty and the movement of chords, harmonic structures and melodic figures for the piano, mostly the piano, and some for voice, vocal. I did a composition in high school called Music for a Law Day. It was a choral piece for to honor May 2nd, I believe, was designated as Law Day in the United States. Um, May 2nd is Law Day. The rest of the year, law was unnecessary. <laughs> 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 but uh, May, 2nd, May 2nd was Law Day. And I composed this lovely piece that I think was sung by our choir, a high school choir, and then uh, it got to be on radio too. Hmm. So choir music for the voice and then uh, music for the piano. Although in high school I played a lot of violin so it allowed me to think line think linearly, think melodically too. Mm -hmm. And playing piano allowed me to think rhythmically and chordal. 
When did uh, your composition start to shift to the music that you're well known for now, the ambient music? It shifted right after like two very dramatic consciousness shifting experiences during meditation in the mid seventies, nineteen seventies, and you sh they were happened at late at night or early in the morning, because those were the times I could have the house or the living room to myself to go deep into meditation. And uh, those experiences were, both happened while I was gazing into my either third eye or left eye in a mirror doing Trotacum with myself. And one experience was staring at this image of the self in the bathroom mirror and having this very clear realization that that body was not me but yet I as a consciousness continuum was in the midst of this experience. And uh, after that experience, I went over to the toilet and continued to pee. <laughs> and, uh, and I asked my myself, what was that all about? And that made me curious enough to start researching uh, the nature of self, um, now, how did I have that experience? I, my language was not in place to describe what I had had, but it opened me up to being more attentive to anyone who was dialoguing on a subject matter that seemed to relate to that. Mm. And uh, Eastern philosophy was relating to what I had experienced, that you are not the body. You have a body, but you're not the body. The body comes and goes, but consciousness is eternal and that you're transparent and weightless. And what originally got you meditating then? Hmm? Who got you meditating? Meditation was... Um, when I began to meditate or search meditation, I, I couldn't get a clear grasp on what it is I was being expected to do until I read this book, a very thin book on Bantam Press, a publishing outfit in the United States, and the teacher was Richard Hittleman. He was, uh, you've yeah. heard the name? Yeah, very famous uh, book on yoga, on Hatha Yoga. Yes. He did a meditation book as well? Yes, um, I think it was called Yoga and Meditation. And I read it and it demystified the yoga experience enough for me to dive into it and invent my way into it. So he, he kind of, uh, he presented a practice in there, maybe without going into the deeper philosophy of where the practice might take you? He might have, but his explanation of what meditation was or could be demystified it for me. Maybe because he was a Westerner. Mm -hmm. uh, he demystified it. It, made, it didn't make it sound like it was out of my reach. Yeah, and, so you could actually just start doing it. Yes, I dived into it. Something he said that allowed me to relate to the term transcendental meditation in a friendly way. You know, transcending, going beyond the familiar outer definition of self and uh, sitting with uh, what remains. It, he actually encouraged me with the uh, practice of taking all the titles off, doing some deep breathing. My form of deep breathing was doing seven rounds of seven in and seven out and then uh, learning to focus on a point a single point in the room for 21 minutes I discovered 
that after 21 minutes, another version of the universe slips into cognition, slips into awareness. Mm -hmm. And it's usually amazing to think, this has been here all the time and I've been overlooking it. Uh, when I developed my ability to sit still for 21 minutes and to relax the breath, then I would uh, practice the idea of taking all titles off myself. It could take a minute or five minutes. Any title that had ever been used to relate to me, refer to me, or describe me, I would gently say, That's not, I'm not the body, I'm not an Afro-American, I'm not a Negro, I'm not a promising composing musician. <laughs> 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 Every title, all the titles off, the good ones, the bad ones, the questionable ones, the proud ones, I call them ribbons. You know, just mm. undo those ribbons and open the gift of the transcendental presence, the transcendental consciousness. So after the titles were taken off, I found it no problem to sit for hours in the state of present time, bliss, euphoria, joy. And I would notice that all the problems, the worries, the jealousies, the doubts, the paranoia belong to the titles. And they didn't belong to me. And it's such a euphoric place uh, to think that it's always here. I'm all, this self is always in the midst of those ribbons that are uh, very wonderful, ancient ribbons, traditional ribbons, family ribbons, uh, artistic, creative uh, career ribbons. And, uh, and I, I wear them with pride, but I didn't realize that they were attracting the you call it karma, the karma of wearing those ribbons. They, they come with something. Uh, heaviness, weight, a sense of boundedness to the local personal history self. So undoing those ribbons, all those ribbons, and opening the gift of the transcendental presence, the present moment. I could sit for hours and go deeper and deeper. And I w was confirmed that I was in a place that was where I needed to be, whether you call it meditation or not, because I was understanding what I couldn't understand before, the teachings of the Bible, the teachings of Jesus, that I received in Sunday school. I would just hear them and repeat them by rote, you know, not like, like a little robot. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but actually understanding them this time. But now understanding, once going, I and the Father are one, became very clear. It's yeah, a non-dual teaching. The that, kingdom that is close missed. at hand. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, the kingdom of hev heaven is within, right? Yeah. So out of those uh, deep mystical experiences, is this where you discovered the music that you're... Yes, it shifted my... The second event, also with standing in front of a mirror, I didn't have the pee this time, but standing in front <laughs> of a little mirror. more time. <laughs> a little less pressure. Standing in front of a mirror, making eye contact with myself. It must have been about 12 o'clock... Or so just before I would go into deep meditation and this music arose inside my awareness and it, it the experience I keep saying it happened but the teaching of that is that there was no past or future because what rose was this musical hearing experience uh, felt like an infinite omnipresent field of music, brass instruments, weaving this timeless, glorious, textural pad or drone. And it called 
my awareness to function as an awareness of eternity, being aware that eternity is now and that everything in the universe is going on now and is simultaneous. And also this emotional welling up. I know, maybe I've gone into tears that uh, the realization of the unity of all things now and the timelessness. Um, my analytical side wanted to say, wanted to know how this was happening because it wasn't a usual kind of hearing experience where you know something, a tone or a sound is originating a few feet or a mile away from you and is traveling through compression waves to your ears, down the eustachian tube, whatever they're called, you, uh, cochlea, down to your... Tickling the, those little hairs in the yes, ears. Yes, that yeah. kind of hearing was not what was going on here. It's as if I was an omnipresent witness, witnessing something that was not outside the self. As I was the eternal present moment and being aware of myself as vibrating as an eternal sound. Uh, after the experience, meaning the day after or two days after it, I, be, I went to libraries to try to research what was that. Because I couldn't write it down, I couldn't record it. And that's when I became aware of things like the uh, music of the spheres or the ohm or the, the cosmic uh, sound current, Shabbat, Shabda Yoga. And I was pleased to know that there are cultures or religious movements that honor that sound. And so after hearing that sound, it shifted my direction from music, from thinking linear to thinking vertical, that uh, the purpose of the music that I wanted, I wanted to emulate that experience. It's like a little child hearing their parents play something, and I want to do that too. And, uh, and so that kind of music was vertical, meaning it said everything is whole right now. You know, no beginning, no ending, no, no coda, no repeats, just a continual present moment. And uh, the vertical music came to me. And when I think of linear music, I think of melody. Da 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 da. When I think of vertical, I think of a chord. Well, all the notes are simultaneous, superimposed, and no note has a distinction outside of the other. There are so, so notes don't even know that they're notes. They just know that they're the the wholeness of the harmonic pad there. So that. After that experience, about two months after that, at my research guided me to being in a pawn shop in New York, and an auto harp became the object of my focus. To make a long story short, I swapped my guitar for an auto harp, went home and started playing with open tunings, not making the connection that here you had 36 strings, and I would tune it to a chord, and I'd play the instrument so that the whole instrument was vibrating it's like vertical music. A, a chord became my musical theme. That within that chord, vibrating it was the, the musical message. That it represented a harmonic, the integration of all the notes into a harmonic intention. And it would unfold through valleys and mountains and streams. And I'd hang out with it meditatively. Like meditation, the deeper you go, the more subtlety opens up staying in the same uh, present time. Mm. I must say that at that time, teachers that I was exposing myself to were uh, Sri Chinmoy, mm. Swami Satchitananda, 
Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, Krishnamurti, uh, and also, I guess, the most impressive ones were the mind science teachings, Thomas Troward, uh, Ernest Holmes, Raymond Charles Barker, Mary Baker Eddy. Uh, they, their teachings kind of pulled my mind out of any residual slave mentality I had had up to that time. And by saying that if you can conceive it, you can achieve it. That uh, what the mind can conceive, man can achieve. And during those mid-70s, simultaneous with my doing meditation, I was also going to religious science, mind science lectures in New York. That kind of, that really took a massive amount of ribbons off the gift. <laughs> Undo the ribbons in the sunlight of your true self and open the gift of your, your infinite bliss, your eternal light, your self-memory. And is that what gave you the courage to start sharing this celestial music? Yes. Uh, you used to call it courage. I call it uh, the enthusiasm to want to sh- find something that's beautiful and you want to share it. And, you just, and uh, at the beginning of this journey, I, I tried to share things in words. You know, Look, you want to know what I experienced in my meditation? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so, ribbon, ribbons it, rustling in the wind. It, it, wasn't, it, it wasn't making any sense. It wasn't moving. But when I, I was able to translate it into music, and then I could see that it impacted. It gave people the space to feel more of what I was saying rather than to listen to words. Yeah. And so you started by just bringing it right to the streets, not w- looking for a venue. Or, or Yeah, playing in the streets was, uh, well... On the sidewalks. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> that term playing in the streets, that's what we did, street musician. But you actually play on the sidewalks in the <laughs> plazas and parks of New York outside the Museum of Natural History, Museum of National of Art, Central Park, Washington Square Park. And there I tested the uh, validity of this altered state, the states of awareness, consciousness, by translating into a rather drone pad, uh, wall of sound kind of music and observing its impact upon uh, pedestrians and park walkers. They would sit down and get into the zone with me. It's like kind of a situationist experiment. Yes, it was. Matter of fact, I consider it more of an experiment and secondly as a way of earning a living. I mean, um, uh, the idea of experimenting was very in the foreground of what I was doing at that time. Mm -hmm. And I guess what was surfacing was making the connection of that cosmic sound hearing experience and the music I was sharing because I didn't believe I could make that kind of music on this side of the audio veil. That, but I learned later that that experience can inform the kind of music I'm reaching for on this side. Mm-hmm. And that something of your own internal experience could be communicated through your limited means, having only two arms and two legs and a mouth, right? Yes. Yeah. I have a few other things. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I have to pee. Are we going to get to hear that at the show tonight? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, I think I'm bringing a pee jar with me tonight. If it's on the top floor of of a parking lot, there's no... Telling that there's going to be a bathroom up there. Yeah. I think of those things. When you're playing in, in raw 
venues, you know, and and suddenly things kick in that, hey, where's the bathroom? Well, it's down three flights. <laughs> and you, <laughs> I ain't got time for three flights, my brother. <laughs> so when you're um, playing on the sidewalks of New York, is that where you met Brian Eno? I was playing in the parks, Washington Square Park in the mm -hmm. north east corner. So you decided, Cobblestone Circle. you decided the parks were a nicer place to share your music at some point? Yes, it was. <laughs> it was Washington Square Park. The New York University was there. NYU students. It was famous as being kind of a, a drug park, no? Uh, yes. Well, actually, the whole village at that time, East and West Village, was uh, marijuana uh, was, was not an odd term to hear, and the smell of ganja fumes was not an out of the way. You didn't have to go too far out of the way to smell it. Uh it was when you said that the terms druggy uh seemed to apply to seeing people with tattoos and shirts off and laying on the grass in an altered state that was not an uncommon thing to see i wasn't one of them but i was but they're my shirt a receptive, was on. <laughs> receptive audience though <laughs> just your kind of crowd right <laughs> yeah they got into the music they could enjoy it and so playing in the washington square park um, frisbees, roller, I don't think roller skates were, roller blades were a time there. People walking their dogs. And late night, village uh, residents would sit down on, on this circular bench configuration around this cobblestone circle. In the center, I was busy channeling music eyes closed on my little electric zither. And one particular evening, after finishing a set and starting to count my change, that uh, pretty good money then, there was a note from Brian Eno suggesting that we uh, get together and talk about a, working on a project together. And I followed up the very next day, and uh, we began our connection. Hmm. Did he have a studio in New York at that time? He was living there, but the studio we used for actual recording, if that's what you mean, was several blocks away, Green Street Studios in another part of the village. Mm -hmm. And that kind of started your professional music career, I guess. Yes, in the sense that it, uh, that album, Day of Radiance, Ambient 3, brought my music to a, a wider, an international audience. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Maybe it wasn't till about six or seven years after that that I actually started touring internationally. I started meeting people who had heard my music earlier. Uh, eventually, I met people who had grown up on the music. Hmm. Some people from Japan would tell me, you know, we used to take your music and get stoned and turn out the lights and, <laughs> and just listen to your music. And uh, I think that's interesting. Other teachers would tell me that they used the music to quiet their students down. And uh, one person in New York, I would distribute my cassettes on consignment. And uh, I would go back and check every other week. And she says, you know, I haven't sold many of this particular cassette, but I use it. I put it on when the store gets too busy and it chases the crazies out. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, Thanks for letting me know that. <laughs>
<laughs> I think it was the Om Namah Shivaya tape. Om Namah Shivaya. We chase the crazies. Out. Yeah. <laughs> 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 mm. hmm. And uh, I guess we can kind of skip ahead to now. I know a lot of those early releases um, have been reissued recently. And yes. Last night, I was I was really shocked. I think I was the second oldest guy in that room. I'm the I was the oldest. I think you're the oldest, mm. but I think I was the next one in line. It was uh-huh. a very young crowd last night. Yes, it happens that way. And uh, I started making a connection. Interviews like this asked me, "Can I explain why the resurgence of my music amongst young people?" And uh, just within the last week, I made the connection that one of the intentions I was in recording music was to put into effect an archive that I would enjoy in my later years, but at the same time to put into effect an archive that could benefit the next seven generations on this planet. So this sounds the reason that generations that become uh, of age to listen to music would uh, find something in my music intended for them for the next seven generations. Hmm. Um, I was thinking about this actually after last night and uh, just reflecting on the age of the people who came. And I think in the culture at large, there's kind of a new age renaissance happening uh, among younger people. And it actually seems to be intertwined with fashion and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, things like astrology, uh, tarot is having a resurgence, um, Meditation, of course, is gaining in popularity, although it's kind of a secularized meditation for the most part. But uh, I think there is some kind of New Age renaissance. Is that something that you've observed in your travels? It, it's not easy for me to notice because I've been immersed in this. Yoga studios, meditation centers, New Age con- consciousness groups. Matter of fact, the large-scale uh, spiritual consciousness conferences have had a, taken a big hit. Hmm. They've gotten, some of the ones that I was aware of, fallen in numbers because of the accessibility of this esoteric information by way of the internet. Hmm. But, so I'm, I don't have my hands totally on this pulse. People like you are telling me that this is, younger people are flocking to the new age music scene or awakening. And I just see it as a smooth, uh, movement of music. Uh, I take your word for it. I mean, I haven't sat in the conclave of young people saying, "Yes, we've risen in a new age." And <laughs> but uh, there was new age interest when I was uh, in my twenties and thirties. Right. Uh, so you found that there was always an audience there for you. Yes, I have. Um, because once the music, I believe, is to relax the person. If they're breathing, the blood is going through their veins, uh, and their mind is busy, they'll find something in the music that addresses them, regardless of what part of the world they come from. And so it's more like medicine, that uh, it's always useful, uh, regardless of what, 
the date of the well you can't use medicine after a certain date but this music is dateless yeah. medicine yeah no expiry <laughs> use before yeah. <laughs> but use anytime yeah well that's actually something i wanted to ask you is uh how does music heal and do you think it has mostly to do with that relaxation response uh, once a teacher told me something that made big sense. She said, Muse, the power of music works through suggestion. Suggestion. I said, oh, yes. So if I am in a state of conscious communion with the infinite or the pranic field and uh, long enough before performance so that it's in my system when I'm performing, then the suggestion to the listener is that uh, they're their consciousness or their heart or their intuition takes a suggestion and works with it. So the question was, does music heal? Uh, for me, healing is sort of like the tone bowling. You take a bowling ball and you throw it down or you roll it down, whatever you do with a bowling ball, and that's called bowling. You're, you're managing a bowling ball. You're bowling with a bowling ball. <laughs> so healing is that you're working with whole energy wholeness energy and for me that means the healer has their own inner image or feeling or intuitive connection to what wholeness is for me wholeness is about flowing so if you've had a deep hit on the pranic field know that the pranic ocean is a whole field or the cosmic moment is a nowness a wholeness then you can work with it by suggesting through your mute through my music through your body movement and Tai Chi Chuan, you can suggest that you're in touch with a, a complete whole Chi energy field. That through suggestion, music can suggest flowingness, it can suggest integration of consciousness with the wholeness of the present moment. Uh, for me, that's where I think I fit in with healing by suggesting fluidity, suggesting. Uh, connection of consciousness to the eternal origin and destination. Also, breath to uh, suggest an open, unstuck breath. Also, to suggest the flowingness of fluids in the body, uh, the blood flowing. Sometimes I use the visualization of blood flow. Sometimes I use the visualization of imaginary folk, ethnic groups dancing joyfully together. So suggestion, suggesting to the imagination, suggesting to the emotional memory of the listener. Mm. That feels right to me. It's like somehow if you can suggest wholeness through the music that that's going to uh, resonate in the person and they'll recognize wholeness again. Now, this is my my hit on what healing is through sound. And I, I would imagine there are a creative variety of other directions other artists take for that yeah well the original i mean the etymology of the word healing is wholeness that's where mm -hmm. it comes from yes i mean i can't go up to a sick person and tell them i'm going to heal you because the moment i see a sick person i'm in my own way but perhaps if you could help them feel more whole they'll suffer in that sickness less yes but, uh i don't go up to the, oh i'm so sorry to see that you're boom 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 uh, that might be an entry point to d develop an intimacy. But then um, you can then start relating to their innermost consciousness, and they might not understand what you're doing. 
but you can start representing the wholeness energy in their presence, whether it's your tone of voice, your eye focus. Um, they might think you're talking to them, the personal history, while you may be talking to the pranic field or talking to their inner uh, divine core, mm. and you're helping them to lift their conscious awareness to the place that they may not know how to get to on their own or their life situation is too overwhelming for them to get there but on their own. Mm -hmm. So in order for you to get to a place where you can suggest wholeness to others, um, what do you do to help facilitate that? Is music your meditation or do you still maintain a yoga practice that's not musical? Well, that's the key. Don't wait till you need to heal somebody. You, you, you kind of make it your lifestyle. So the, the decision was the easiest way is to just shift your lifestyle and become become a constant channel. Wake up and tune in. Walking in the park, tune in. Stay tuned in. I, my sense is that uh, I should give 10% of my day at least to remembering or being in that state. 10%, that's about two and a half hours or 10% of every hour um, to remembering so that I don't have to, like a doctor, you, you meet somebody who needs healing, you don't run back to your house to get your healing tools. You should have them with you all the time. Um, so the idea of breathing, remembering to breathe, keeping the breath connected, remembering to drop into the awareness that I am not the body, I have a body, but drop into this vertical field, I call it, the vertical field, which has zero projection, zero, zero point, so that I, if I can use this vertical field extends vertically, that the wholeness of, of the now doesn't project into tomorrow or yesterday. It's mm. continuing. To remember how to remember what I need to remember so I don't forget. <laughs> 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 so it's a constant practice, and it means shifting my lifestyle. When I hear people who have nine-to-five jobs and say, I wish I could meditate, I say to myself, I wish I could have meditated too, so I did something about it. I quit the job. <laughs> 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 and so learn how to make that my priority. And I guess I wanted to make it my priority once I had those deep meditation and realizing that I'm not the body. It's not about just earning a living in this personal history span of time. It's about uh, owning the full expanse of my eternalness. And I call it think cosmically and act locally. And so for a while, I decided to live at whatever level my music would support me. And uh, sometimes it was $6 an hour on the sidewalks in New York. And then eventually, after getting uh, noticed by some major conferences and meditation centers and starting selling cassettes, started uh, my economic bracket shifted a bit enough, but I could still decide I'm going to live at whatever level. Sometimes uh, I might have experienced two or three evictions in New York. And at the last eviction, I said, maybe I'm a little too spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> little more, a, get a little the, more material. I made a, commi <laughs> yeah, I made a commitment. Uh, anyway, I can make money that's ethical. I, I will consider it. I'm not too spiritual to make money now. <laughs> and uh, I've been able to keep my apartment for a while. Yeah. yeah. You're still in New York? Yes, in Harlem. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about when you and RG met and started working together. How did that shift things for you? Um, it, I don't know if it shifted. It, uh, it was uh, a continuation or extension of what I feel I'm doing, is that sharing my life through music, through sound, and when I met Archie, I felt here's a beautiful piece of music I'd like to share. Oh. <laughs> and uh, so I felt I could feel, I was already in a sense of a spiritual community on the planet, and Archie felt like a sister in that community, though just to extend my karma, I mean my career advantages, so that she could share her gifts in the in places that she weren't able to get to at the time, other conferences, and uh, broaden, it helped to broaden her circle of being able to share her gifts. It was, we met in sh at a Healing Sounds Intensive in Colorado, Jonathan Goldman's Healing Sounds Intensive in uh, Loveland, Colorado. This is where we met, and uh, actually met at a dining hall table. I was sitting there just having arrived at this conference, this intensive, and she came over to me and introduced herself and said that a mutual friend of ours said, advised that she look me up and give me a hug. So <laughs> we had a hug. and She delivered a hug from a friend and that was uh, the end that, of that. Yeah, that, that through a hug, I can tell in hugging or just being with people that we have some work or some fun to do together, mm -hmm. have a flow to accomplish together. So I feel like in effect, she's not my partner. I have a feeling that the cosmic force has us together, and she belongs to her destination and her cosmic calling, and that I have to constantly remember that she's not mine. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, and that, that I, being tuned in, being present, that uh, everybody is me, and uh, if I'm called to be this and that tomorrow, that it, I would feel it to be my authentic calling. And that uh, there's a song, if you love somebody, set them free. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you love somebody, don't enchain them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess currently uh, the beings known as Loraji and RG, their ribbons are intertwined at the moment. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really great to see you two working together and um, modeling that, uh, yes. a man and a woman in partnership, uh, you know, teaching, performing together. Uh, it's really inspiring. We have a broad base of compatibility and always remembering that uh, the best relationships aren't two people looking in each other's eyes, but two people looking in the same direction, going to have the same uh, calling mm -hmm. that aligns them. Yeah, walking down the path together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I wanted to ask you about this uh, new album, Sun Transmissions. Um, and on it, there are remixes and edits by some young artists. And I wanted to know a little bit about what that process was like. Because they were reworking old, older material, right? Yes. It, I don't use the term weird often. So I'm not going to use it now. <laughs> but it's, I'm used to doing music and uh, jamming with people too. But to have other artists 
take your work and remix it, and then the company sends you the music and says, what do you think of this? And I'm listening, and I'm hearing interesting directions, and sometimes I don't get my original music in there. But it's it's a unique experience, but it also opened me up to why don't I remix some of my own music that uh, that my music is that inspiring. But I feel good when I hear the music on Sun Transformations that, oh, they took liberties that I would have encouraged if this were a workshop of being creative. They, they took liberties mm. and took it in directions that that emotionally I, I don't go in. And so they opened, they took some of the ribbons off my own <laughs> uh, self-definition uh, with sound. Mm. And the music, that album was well promoted. And I think only 2,000 copies were out there and I, they might be close to suddenly becoming collector's items. Mm -hmm. And it's out there streaming as well, so who knows how many people are listening to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you, were you going to, when you asked me about RG, I wonder if it's fair that she ha should have a word or two. Maybe, I don't know, okay. she's shaking her head, but. <laughs> a word or two is an understatement. Well, maybe, RG, uh, you could speak a little bit about the workshop that you guys did last night, because I wanted to ask you about uh, this laughter play shop meditation that you're offering. Yes. And how that came about, and really, if you could give the listeners some idea of what it's all about and why you do it. I've always been uh, an enjoyer of people laughing. I was a pull antics when I was young, performed in comedy shows in school, college, and eventually came to New York to pursue comedy as possibly to create a financial base upon which I could then compose. So in the early 70s, I was in New York doing stand-up comedy. When I got into meditation, I became aware of certain spiritual teachers. One of them was Sri Bhagwan Rajneesh, who was like, uh, I could call him mentor or eye-opener or... A man with a lot of huspa. <laughs> yeah, he had <laughs> that, that impressed me. Kind of <laughs> helped me to undo some ribbons that I thought were uncool to undo. Hmm. So he helped me to take some ribbons off. And um, one of the books that was published around him was called a book, an orange book of meditations. It was chock full of suggested meditations, approaches to meditations. And one of those approaches was laughter meditation. And up to that time, I was doing stand-up comedy and writing comedy. But I'd never made the connection between comedy or laughing and meditation. I thought meditation was solemn yeah. and Serious laughter business. was losing it. <laughs> yeah. And being silly right. and frivolous and throwing fate to the wind. But with this laughter meditation was the suggestion of in the morning before getting out of bed, do 15 minutes of laughter with your eyes closed. You do some stretches before and just laugh for 15 minutes, dry it for seven days. And I did it. And I was impressed where it, where it took me. Mm. That uh, the first five minutes was awkward, you know, <laughs> trying to fake your own laughter until I started catching on and noticing where I generally go in the body and the face and the breath when I laugh. So I was able to be mindful of certain cues that would get me into the laughter zone. I also noticed how it would take off resistance to uh, 
spontaneous laughter. I found there were more opportunities to laugh or to smile in each day. That They're there, but I became aware of them. It's sort of like meditation on a single point, learning that there's another universe here waiting to greet me when I'm prepared to recognize it. So there is uh, opportunities for laughter, not necessarily laughing at something, but sharing a very light and luminous moment. I learned that laughter is not about listening to jokes as much as it's showing up inside of human interactions with joy, with vulnerability, and sharing a communal laughter, which is yummy. Mm. So that laughter work, the laughter experiment on myself went so well that I decided to create like a five or 20 minute laughter workshop in the course of my healing music workshops at the time with conferences in North Carolina and in New York. And the workshop took off and developed a life of its own. Hmm. And it, so there I had two careers now. And I felt blessed and blissed to be in this way of sharing laughter without nightclub comedy approach. Mm-hmm. Nightclub comedy at that time was still exposing yourself to cigarette smoke, late hours, and uh, and also it was polarizing humor, humor that works because you polarize people. Mm. This way it was non-polarizing, getting people directly into their core giggle and using it. Later on I found out that you could do these workshops and direct people to the healing benefits of laughter. The technically medically documented proof that certain heavy laughter approaches benefits your uh, immune system, blood flow, your uh, endorphins. and So I, in later years, along with Archie, we've evolved this play shop that allows people to get into laughter, authentic laughter, find their authentic laughter again, and how to uh, develop the ability to spontaneously let that laughter benefit their their health. And I could see even more so is how to get laughter to take you into meditation, deep relaxation, shavasana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I felt that last night. Like It really is a great preparation for that relaxation. Uh, it is a kind of yoga. It gets you out of your head and into your body and prepares you for just resting in the present moment. Yes, indeed. I tried laughing for 70 minutes once. And, uh, <laughs> and it became, you know, you get to a point where enough already. Then your system breaks down and says, let's not call this laughter. Let's call this bliss. Let's call this euphoria. And it became like a breath mantra. Hmm. And the breath opens up bigger than I thought it could. The body opens up. And uh, there, it takes it to a deeper, deeper level. So much so that I got in touch with world laughter. You know, I can imagine the world laughing and learning how to project that in my own laughter. So you can use laughter, your own laughter, to suggest that someone else is laughing and that they're in touch with their wholeness. So hmm. extended from music that I'm exploring, the use of laughter as a healing performance art that actually use your laughter in a, a cool way. I mean, you, you can you can wiggle it into your your speech or if you're a yoga teacher how to bring a laughter friendliness into your speaking voice 
Uh, I like to get people outright laughing while they're trying to do yoga poses. <laughs> yes. Why not? Move, Why not? Move the prana. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't take it all too seriously, too. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, you started out the workshop last night by doing some call and response chanting of the seed sounds. Yes. Bija mantras. And I'm wondering um, what you think about those, because it's something that I'm really interested in, these primordial well, seed sounds and the effect they have on us. Well, I was doing just regular chanting, uh, light languages and uh, traditional and non-traditional chanting until R.G. brought it to my awareness, the seed mantras, seed syllables, and then we thought we'd experiment with it, that they are less intimidating to somebody who needs to know what they mean if it yeah, yeah so seed syllables are <laughs> easy la means la you can't translate it yeah. ram yes so experimenting with it i find that it's uh, just as effective maybe even more effective to suggest through seed syllables vibrational vibrational uh, activity that to use sound to vibrate rather than to intellectually explain something, mm-hmm. to use sound to vibrate the system. And that I could, this table we're at, I could talk to the table and say, do you know you're a table, that you were made of oak and that you were built in 1995 by a group of uh, carpenters? I could do that or I could slap the table and touch it and cause it to vibrate, to become aware of itself beyond any names I could give it. So I think of the seed syllable as a way of vibrating the system uh, and not asking the intellect to understand, but to feel. Feel vibrate, feel you are a vibrational presence, a vibrational going-ons. Beautiful. Yeah, it's like for me it's very direct, and there's nothing in the way there. There's no concept in the way, no mm-hmm. image. It's very much like, you know, I'm a guitar player, and it's like the plucking of a string is just a vibration. Yes. Yeah. It may be in similar to the experience I didn't have in 1970s. When I say I didn't have, meaning it never took place. Right. It, it is happening. It is happening. But in that space, I am a vibration, vibrating medium. And uh, that's how I am hearing the sound. I'm hearing it by feeling it. Uh, that I am the vibration, vibrating medium. And this is what sends me on my course of music now, to use music as a vibrational stimulus so that the listener can feel themselves as a vibrating medium. And, mm-hmm. it, and when that vibration hits a certain frequency, uh, insights kick in, awareness awakens. Yeah. I sometimes think about it like this cosmic radio station that's always playing 24 hours a day. Yes. And we just need to like tune the dial, get the antenna right. <laughs> and we're just tuning into that, which is always there. That's how I often uh, talk about OM. Yes. Um, that is a soft approach. My feeling is that people using that approach need to be sincere and persistent with it. Uh, I have this feeling that initially like a 60-hour immersion period may be necessary to get people to realize just how powerful that approach can be. I mean, just to do it on the surface, to sit in a yoga class for an hour and a half 
may not shift people enough if they're going to go out into work field or go out into something that might distract them from it. I say a strong immersion period might be necessary to actually get it. Oh, yeah, I could really shift my consciousness to be in alignment with the cosmos where I am. Um, there are people like Sri uh, Muktananda, who was one guru teacher who used to tap people with uh, peacock feathers. Peacock feathers, and they would get shakti pot, mm -hmm. and they would their systems would vibrate, and they would go into an awareness of themselves to be in a different vibratory presence. That that was a quickie. You could get a teacher can get in your presence and can can fast track that 60 hours to a peacock feather. Yeah, and I think uh, psychedelics can also do that too. Oh, and I didn't know we were going to go in that direction. Well, it just, All right, now that we're in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the way I sometimes think about them because I kind of tend to think about everything in a yoga context. And <clears throat> in this time, there aren't too many living gurus anymore. You know, there's no more muktanandas with peacock feathers. And I think that's one of the reasons why these um, plant medicines have really... Uh, increased in people being aware of them and finding their way to them like these plants from the Amazon are now finding their way all around the globe and I think it does offer something of that Shaktipat experience in the absence of the human guru yes I would add that my experience is that at least 45 minutes whatever I'm doing with my conscious focus 45 minutes before ingesting will determine the direction mm -hmm. uh, that goes a teacher would say that Whatever direction you're going in, this will take you in. If you're going down, it'll take you down. If you're going up, it'll take you up. So where the question is your intention. You can be around maybe not a heavy guru, but a light teacher that will help you to respect the need for intention before going into a ceremony or going into a circle of, of altered state. Setting your intention, how to set an intention, what effectively constitutes an intention. Would you have any advice on setting an intention? Uh, ritual is very ritual. Um, whether you call it going to a specific space in your living space and and setting whether you got crystals or a picture of a uh, someone who inspires you or tidying up, giving attention to your little altar if you call it or a little sacred area. And uh, that ritual involves your physical breath and mental focus. So you're focusing. Uh, reading, I find, is very useful. Reading uh, specific material. For instance, let's say that I wanted to uh, understand what I'm going to say. Let's say that uh, a trigonometry a trigonometry uh, puzzle or a question or a mathematical equation that I couldn't figure out. Then I would spend 45 minutes more uh, contemplating the elements of uh, what, geom geometry uh, and just understanding geometry, geometrics. And then I would take a toke or take a hit <laughs> or whatever you call it. And then whammo, the direction that I had set before would determine, I would start seeing geometric relationships or getting insight. In the case of uh, spiritual journeying, breathing is, breathing, in connected breathing is one way of going into a ritual. 
finding your your best spiritual inspirational manual, the one that dresses you and speaks to the way that you understand. Some people like highly technical spiritual stuff or some very flowery heart-centered that will help to focus your heart into the softness. I like reading uh, metaphysical material that reminds me of the ability of the mind to focus and... Uh, so whatever I'm doing, 45 minutes is a ritual. Uh, when I'm setting up for music, RG knows this too, setting up our performance space is a ritual that mm -hmm. focuses us. I mean, if I could jump into a performance and just roll out a carpet and start performing, it probably wouldn't be much of a ritual. The ritual is about anywhere from 15 minutes to half an hour, 45 minutes of setting up, and that sets the focus. Tuning the instrument sets the focus. So that's another part of uh, setting intention, tuning up your instrument. You might even dress. I find that even dressing for uh, a ritual is very important. You, you, some people want to take a bath if they want to, uh, throw water on, sprinkle water on your head, uh, setting incense. All of this is focalizing your setting yourself in intention. Eventually, intention, I think, is more vertical than linear. It's not, I'm going to do something. That's linear. I'm going as is more vertical. And what I mean by that is I'm not going to dive into the light. That's linear. I'm going to dive as light. In other words, somehow get to a place where I'm no longer going to do anything, but I'm going as, whether you, I'm a child as a spirit. I say, don't go toward God, go as God. I say, mm -hmm. if you take... Ten steps toward God, you're taking a hundred steps away from God. If you go as God, you arrive. If you go as light, you arrive. You go as heavenly consciousness, you arrive. And I'd say, don't try to become a great musician. Be as a great musician, awakening to your own genius now. Yeah, like trying to get someplace is a denial that you're actually there already <laughs> that's what the laws of consciousness teach you that you're giving yeah. attention to the thing that you're trying to get away from of course that destination is always going to keep moving farther as you head toward that thing you're heading towards it's going to keep moving away from you you're never going to make it until you realize that you're right here i find that to be the case it's sometimes it's 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 comfortable to be lazy and forget about that and think i'm struggling to get somewhere and then somebody will remind me that the journey is just can be just as fun as getting there. But in the meantime, I believe we each have the capacity, given who I believe we all are, <laughs> that we can play our, our major card. You say we play cards, your major trump card or whatever the card is. We can play our God card or our spirit card, or our cosmic I am card, and go as the, as the I am when, before a performance or before a lecture, or going to a healing journey, go as the healing journey. And then when you arrive, you're not going into the healing journey. You are arriving as a healing journey, and where you are is a continuation of your healing journeyness. And is there, yeah, I'm thinking about after the... Uh, the ceremony, the ritual, the imbibing of some substance, perhaps. Yes. What do you think uh, 
what do you think we need in order to integrate that into our everyday experience of life? Is do we require a discipline practice? and practice? Yeah, discipline and practice. Uh, discipline, very important. I'm blessed that uh, I think it's through my music studies and through my school system uh, I develop a discipline. And my folks helped me along the way with something that's called a strap. <laughs> I learned discipline yeah. early. And uh, at the time, discipline feels awkward, and, and I wish I didn't have to. But discipline was necessary. On the spiritual journey, the discipline of staying on the case, the discipline of holding on to your underlying sense of who you are, in the midst of outer world uh, barrages of goings on, the discipline of diving in, I say at least two and a half hours every day, accumulative, of staying as the divine, functioning as the divine. And practice, that's the practice. Having a practice, I believe a practice is necessary. Having a practice and... Uh, Having a, uh, uh, what do you call it, thing that you're going to do. You, you have a, uh, like a plan? project. Uh-huh. It's yeah. necessary to have a project. Have a, a project, a practice. Uh, and this practice is, can be silent. You don't have to overwhelm the person next to you with it. With your practice, maybe going out to a park on a daily basis and sitting and uh, taking a sun bath or doing Tai Chi, or doing meditative walking, where you, every step, you're arriving in the now. So a practice is necessary, and the discipline, meaning that if you develop a discipline when you had none before, dramatic shifts will take place in your life, maybe with your social circle, with your lifestyle, lifestyle shift. So practice, and uh, what was the other one? Project. Project, practice, and and uh, practice. You've got some kind of like creative project that's... Yeah, or music, to... I always have a creative project. Yeah, something to put that energy into. Yes. Uh, it could be a service. It could uh-huh. be a service project. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you kind of alluded in your story about your childhood to your age, and if Wikipedia's not lying, I think you just turned 75. I didn't. You didn't? No, the body did. The body? Ah. (laughs) Well, the body looks great. Mm. Uh, And I won't say it looks great for 75. It just looks great. And so I'm wondering if you have a physical practice that you go to every day. Yes. Thanks for bringing it up. The practice somewhere in the 70s, early 70s, um, when I was carnivore eating meat, I couldn't imagine how I could live three days without eating meat. And so the idea of being totally vegetarian was unattractive. But um, when I started getting into the laws of consciousness, uh, I started becoming more conscious of my behavior around comedy, shifting, polarizing comedy, shifting. And one particular afternoon, I was at this very hip music party jam out in Queens, New York, and this lovely lady with a lovely home had all these musicians there to jam. And out in the yard, she was doing barbecue. And, and she had somebody who would come in 
to the house and speak to the musicians while they were jamming. He says, uh, we're going to prepare some food for you. What would you like? And so I, I said, I'd like some chicken and some potato salad. And So she went out and came back a little later, little later on. And I should mention that somehow a joint fell into my mouth and caused me to breathe. <laughs> so by the time the chicken came, you know, I forgot to tell her that I wanted it well done. And, and they brought me a chicken, and there I am, stoned into the seventh level. And I bit into the chicken that was still raw. Oof. And my consciousness put the whole chicken back together for me, and I realized what I was doing. And it even made me remember when I lived in the country at an earlier age, I would see Sunday dinner, Saturday alive, and see its head get chopped off, and the chicken would flop around in the field. And so all that came back to me, and I said, holy moly. And right then, I made the decision to cut out chicken and meat, and I faded out with uh, a few years later out of eating seafood. And I realized that I could not participate in the process that brought meat to my table. I couldn't go out and chop a chicken's head off. I could not slaughter a pig. And so in the laws of consciousness, I wanted to integrate into full, whole consciousness. I couldn't deny that aspect, you know, that I had to shut some of my consciousness down in order to eat meat. <clears throat> and uh, so the practice was to move toward integrating whole consciousness. So the practice literally said, okay, are you going to deny? Or you? And so I faded out of eating meat as a practice. And that was one of uh, the practices that I, I think contributed to my health. It also shifted a lot of my holidays. Thanksgiving shifted big time. Yeah. Also the practice was uh, dancing a lot. I love dancing. Dancing gets me, that's where I do my yoga. I do yoga practice before dancing, do Tai Chi during the dancing, breathe a lot, and then I can sing. The places where I do dancing, I can sing. So being expressive, laughing a lot, walking. Uh, what else do I do? Uh, so the when you're going dancing, is that at like ecstatic dance? Ecstatic dancing, yeah. uh, barefoot boogie, contact improvisation, cool. Gabriel Roth, five rhythms, dance mm. meditation. Fantastic. Yes, that means a lot. And allowing a social circle of friends who like to laugh and who we call it non-toxic social circle. Mm. Yes, I, I faded out of cigarettes. I tried in college, experimented with cigarettes. I never did quite accept that cigarettes were good for me, but I smoked them. Um, what else can I say? Diet. You had a diet. So yeah. watching, tweaking my diet every now and then, um, cutting out of salt lately, I had to tone down on salt and sugar. And I'm adding chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, I don't extremely, carrot cake will get in there. I'm a connoisseur of ginger beer around the world. Uh, I'm a big fan of ginger beer too. Yes. I haven't yet found a good source for ginger beer in Montreal. Yeah, so there's one around the corner I tried yesterday. It, it's made with spices, but it tastes pretty good. Uh, the Jamaicans can make a very strong ginger beer, and Africans can too. Yeah, but um, not to say that Scandinavians don't make a good ginger beer. I just haven't tasted. <laughs> We're Canadians, <laughs> but I know what you mean. There's nothing like yes. a nice spicy Jamaican that, ginger beer. That question was yes, a very uh, getting enough sleep, dancing, breathing, 
and monitoring my thoughts. I know I cut out heavy language. That helped a lot. What do you mean uh, by heavy language? I did something called a mental, mental diet suggested by Emmett Miller, a seven-day mental diet where you make the decision for seven days to avoid some behavior that you're not liking. And one of my behaviors was anger. As a Torian, I could fire up big time. And it was at a time when I was riding the subways doing a temporary job, Simon's in New York. So that's, if you've ever been on the subways in rush hour in New York, it's very easy to uh, spurt out expletives. You know, people push and shove and you want to get there and somebody's in your way. So I used that as my background for the seven-day mental diet and I refused to use heavy language, anger, or express anger for seven days. And I was impressed to learn that uh, anger and heavy language was automatic and that I could choose. It, it's altered my whole language. I'd, mm. the, the, most, the most severe my language get, oh, foodly boodly. That's my <laughs> <laughs> even that makes you that, laugh. Oh, foodly boodly. <laughs> that says it all for me. <laughs> And I, I advise people to try that. It works. Oh, foodly boodly. Well, you've driven in Montreal, which is notorious for its uh, drivers. I, I read a joke the other day that said um, it was like a fake headline yes. in an online newspaper or something. And it said, uh, Montreal driver accidentally discovers turn signal while reaching for latte. <laughs> <laughs> Holy moly. It's kind of the case, but uh, I learned driving across country with my wife in our Volkswagen van, which had a top speed of probably across 80, Canada. yeah, across Canada, top speed of like 80 kilometers an hour. So you'd get a lot of people racing past you and f giving you the finger, you know, as they went mm -hmm. past because you're driving too slow for them. And uh, I just started flashing them the peace sign. Oh. You know, when something in me wanted to flash on the other finger, I would just flash them the peace sign. That's and a I, practice. It made a huge difference, actually. Mm -hmm. um, just so long as they see the second finger. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be careful. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I like that practice, too. Um, mm -hmm. Anything else that you'd, you'd uh, chanting, like to leave? Um, finding, I'd say, with all the options of chanting mm. and mantras, that one can experiment with finding their mantra, their inner mantra, experimenting with it, because you're closest to you. And that if you get to a place of clarity, start experimenting with tones and languages that can clear your awareness. And I say jam your thinking mind so that your vertical awareness can come to the foreground. So experiment with uh, if the mantras you're using don't quite get you there, then you might uh, experiment with some of your own. It might mm. be toning or singing that find what brings your spirit home to where you're not no longer going in but you're going as <laughs> learn to sing uh, or tone beyond the human being returning home uh, but to the place where you are the spirit indwelling the human experience it's, it's kind of that they sing not from the ground up, but sing from the sky down. Hmm. That that might be a tall order for someone who's who's got lots of ribbons, tra traditional ribbons. But if you can take the ribbons off and realize that, hey, I am that indwelling spirit, and that I 
do have the rights to sing as the eternal where I am, then you may find you need another language to, to express that. It might just be squeaks and gawks and vibrational tones that keep you home, keep you from leaving. That's beautiful. How about we end our conversation with a little bit of uh, looking for the mantra within? Ah, I like that. Can I just add one thing? Sure. Just one item to cover, and that is in the 10 years of um, being with Laraji in a collaborative sense, uh, both performance music and in the laughter work, aside from all of that is his recognition that within us, and I bring in the feminine aspect of mother, um, which is very important to me in my work, my singular work, both as a dream teacher, shamanic dream practitioner, and in my ethnic work with Asclepian dream healing. Um, Laraji's recognition that, for example, when we were doing the exercises last night with the inner child, the playful inner child, my intention that I set with each and every person in the room is that they connect with their inner mother. Mm. We each have that capacity. One of my great teachers is Thich Nhat Hanh, and in his practice of Buddhism, he emphasizes that we all have an inner mother, and that inner mother loves us infinitely and has a compassionate capacity beyond our imagining. And many people are very hard on themselves. So my intention when we do this, it's not verbalized as I'm saying it now, is that we all be able to connect with that nurturance quality within us that unlocks our healing capacity, our self-healing. Mm. We don't need external healers per se. They really are only guides. But that inner mother uh, aspect is very vital. Mm. I find that like last night when we did the heart exercise mm -hmm. where we chant our name and we attach to it, which some people get very uncomfortable. Um, oh, my little Brian is so beautiful. And then the other person affirms it. If you're really in your heart with that person in that little tiny two minute exchange, it can have profound impact. Uh, I, I have found in the last 10 years of our doing this exercise, especially with young people who are seeking. It's not uncommon in that exchange that they well up and, and, and they're touched. They're not even sure why they're deeply touched. It's really through the intention that that inner mother nature be triggered. That self-compassion, self-acknowledgement, self-love, self-esteem quality come to the fore. That's healing. Mm -hmm. There's a formula in the sound healing community that goes sound plus intention equal healing. Mm. You can have a Pavarotti voice, but if the intention isn't there, it's a flat experience energetically. 
You can have a mediocre voice, but if the intention is present, the potential for healing is profound. That's what I bet on because <laughs> I don't have a perfect voice, but I think I've got good intentions. Oh, thanks so much for adding that. Um, I really, I felt that last night. Last year, I, I got into some deep healing of my own inner child, uh, little Brian Sito, as I've come to call him. <laughs> and uh, we touched that last night for sure in that exercise. And uh, it's really beautiful. I think um, what you're saying about that inner mothering um, is really important. Uh, I think we have the ability to give ourselves the mothering or fathering that maybe we didn't get. And of course, nobody's parents are perfect. Um, so there's always some of that work to do. Uh, and it's beautiful work. And uh, I think I'd love to do a whole interview with you sometime, because we could go on and on about that. Uh, it's really important work. And thanks for bringing that into Thank the conversation. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, maybe you can join us for some, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, Laraji, this finding your own mantra? Yes, you're in a vibrational uh, connector, or you're that tone or that way of using your voice or using the silence that brings your awareness, your spirit self forward in your conscious awareness. Mm. So toning, uh, I, I don't remember what Ble I said. Bleeps and bloops or something like that? Squeaks and squawks, <laughs> groans <laughs> and moans and tones that are meaningful to you, but um, they connect you. They're for you. So uh, you don't necessarily have to blurt them out over the uh, amphitheater. That You can do them in your own private space. They're tones that keep you uh, present and kind of jam your thinking mind from interfering with your inner current of knowingness. Mm. It feels like there's something of the inner child in that playful exploration. Of yes. Sound. Yeah. Beautiful. Let's <laughs> give it a try. Thanks so much. <laughs> Just to give us a ground to meet on. Yes. The drone.
Well, that was such a fun and fascinating conversation. Laraji and RG are such warm and playful people and real examples of integrated spirituality. They truly walk the talk. So if you'd like to find out more about Laraji and his upcoming events, please visit laraji.blogspot.com. And I'd also recommend checking out a short film about him called Eternity or Bust, which you can find on YouTube. And I'll include links in the show notes at medicinepathpodcast.com. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps a new podcast find an audience. Well, goodbye for now, and I hope to meet you again on The Medicine Path. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns.